0: Hello, this is Monica Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today, I'm speaking to the Iranian-American novelist, essayist and short story writer, Dina Nayeri. She's the author of several works, including the magical novel A Teaspoon of Earth and Sea, as well as the 2019 award-winning book of creative non-fiction, The Ungrateful Refugee. That's since been anthologised, it's taught in schools around the world, and her work has appeared in numerous publications, Finally, she has a new book out. It's called Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough? Dina, welcome back to Monocle. Oh,
1: thanks for having me back. It was so
0: great when we first spoke when The Ungrateful Refugee had just come out. Yeah. Something in that book and something within you really chimed within me. I thought it was the most extraordinary book, really just showing us what the experience of being a refugee was like, but also talking about how this need to be ever grateful, was. Mm. it made us ask those questions of ourselves. And it also sparked a friendship between us. Yes,
1: it did. (laughs) I'm very grateful for that. (laughs) (laughs) Me
0: too, me too. Which means that this new book, Who Gets Believed? I've read in various states over the last couple Mm -hmm. of years and it has turned into the most extraordinary work. It's very personal in places, but it also looks at much, much wider issues. Mm -hmm. And I think, first of all, if we start off asking why, why? why do you need to ask that question who gets believed yeah
1: you know that question has actually always been kind of an underlying obsession for me and even when I was writing other books, I think that theme kind of ran underneath a little bit. But, you know, when I was a kid in Iran, those first few years, you know, I think the first impression I got of life is that my family was very well respected. My mother was a doctor. My father was a doctor. There was a lot of unquestioning acceptance, I suppose, from the community where, you know, if my mother said something, people believed her. If she gave a recommendation, a diagnosis, et cetera, people just, you know, kind of took her for her word. And when we became refugees, I saw that you know, credibility and belief slowly draining away. And I couldn't articulate it then. But by the time we arrived in Oklahoma, it was very clear to me that we had fallen and that there was no more of that ready credibility and kind of respect for her or for our family. And I became a little bit obsessed with, you know, how do you become the kind of Western woman who does get listened to and believed and asked for things like expertise and recommendations. And, and so I guess that obsession grew. And I think it really fed so many of my life choices just going forward, because I, you know, I went chasing credentials, and I wanted expertise. And I wanted these stamps of, of approval from, you know, the kind of organizations that don't get questioned, you know, I became obsessed with Harvard and that sort of thing. And, but this book specifically, I guess, after I went looking for refugee stories, trying to reconnect with my past, and I wrote The Ungrateful Refugee, there was this one chapter at the center, which was about asylum storytelling. And it was so stunning to me just how many or why stories were not believed. You know, the the most obviously true ones, people with mountains of evidence, people with scars on their backs. And, And I didn't have room in that book. And I decided, you know, I'm going to write another book that's just about that, And not just about refugees, but all kinds of vulnerable people and privileged people. Mm. And you do this,
0: as you say, by telling their own stories. And one of the first ones you tell is about a Sri Lankan refugee.
1: Yes. Tell us a little more. His name is KV. And I was so surprised to find how little his story was reported in the UK. But in 2011, KV arrived from Sri Lanka to the UK and he claimed asylum. And he had a back and arms just covered in scars. And these were scars from hot soldering irons. And it was known at the time, widely known by humanitarian organizations, NGOs, the UK government, and other governments around the world that this was a very typical torture method in Sri Lankan detention. If they suspected someone of being involved with Tamil Tigers, this is how they tortured them. And so many, many refugees were pouring into the UK with those typical scars very easily understandable why, you know, this was happening. It was happening in a large scale. So KV arrived too with those same scars and with a very similar story to everyone else. And because there's limited translators, similar language and so on. And um, his case was dismissed. It went through several layers of the UK court system. Many experts, medical experts, legal experts said this is obviously what happened to him. But the astonishing part is, The reason that he was dismissed, the Home Office said that he had inflicted the scars on his own body in order to get UK asylum. And here's the funny part. They created this just made up, out of the blue acronym, S-I-B-P, self-infliction by proxy, to turn away people exactly like him. And they made it sound official, you know, and they made it sound like it's a real thing. But it was completely invented. And not only was it invented, when... They started using this as a reason to reject. All of the charity workers and and humanitarian organizations again and experts said this doesn't actually happen. People don't do this to themselves. But the thing is that the Home Office had not attached any burden of proof to this bucket. It was a catch-all. It was an if-not-this-then-that catch-all bucket. So if you choose not to believe the thing that definitely happens all the time and is documented, you can just throw them into this bucket, which has no burden of proof. So the case went all the way to the Supreme Court and it took the Supreme Court to say that that's not logically sound. That's You can't do that. That's not fair.
0: Mm. A lot of these stories are about performing pain in a way that the authorities need to hear it.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, I think this is one of the big things that I learned in writing this book is that when we're listening to other people tell harrowing stories or stories with any kind of emotion, joy, pain, anything like that, we are looking for a particular performance, aren't we? We're not looking for the truth as they experienced it. We're looking for the truth as we have experienced it in the past, kind of almost mirrored back to us, our own experience. It's almost like the way we read books and literature, we're looking to relate, right? Mm. And we look to relate with those details that are familiar to us. So pain performance was one of the ones that I was really struck by because in medicine, you expect that to be a place where people, I guess, come in on an even playing field with all of their different cultures and shame and fears and traumas kind of like filtered out by the doctor so that they could actually see that but it's that's not the case their actual performance of how they're experiencing this matters in in their getting believed mm. you talk about the read technique yes <laughs> the reed technique is a method of interrogation by the police where You've probably seen this in television shows and in movies where they come in and they tell this suspect that their guilt is a foregone conclusion. There's all kinds of evidence. They are going to be convicted and they have no hope. Now, this does not have to be true. Police can absolutely lie and say these things in order to extract a confession. Now, originally, the read technique was, was meant to be used in such a way that you don't extract a confession that you use in court you extract details that will then help you find the weapon or the body you know and that is the proof right so if you really put someone through that ringer and they break down and give you some false stuff and you go and don't find the body then that's they obviously didn't do it or were under too much pressure but now it's being used to extract confessions that get used as the evidence against the person and the problem with this is is that often biased police officers with all the same human flaws and kind of perception issues as all of us, they go into a crime, I guess, scene or whatever, and they have their first theory, and all they do is look to confirm that theory. It's like confirmation bias. They gather only the evidence that they need for that, and then they are just adamant to prove it. And so they go in hard, question people, and sometimes the people who are put through the read technique are Again, they have traumas, fears, and shame, and sometimes they're on, you know, autistic spectrums. They have other, you know, mental health things that make them crumble. I can't imagine being able to withstand the read technique myself. Mm. I mean, this is hours and hours of interrogation.
0: And I mean, you've got an example of that, of two men accused of arson.
1: Yeah. Yes, there are. There was one man whose videos of his interrogation I got from the Innocence Project in the US. And I watched this and it was just unbelievable. Like he he looked baffled, he looked exhausted. He kept repeating the same thing again. And again, he kept saying desperate things like, as God is my witness, I did not do this. Like, please, like, and they kept making up other things. And then, you know, finally, one of the things that they do, and here they did it too, is after the person is exhausted, and they're sure that they're They say, but we have an out for you. We want to help you. This is your one chance. Let us help you. If you just confess that you did it for this reason, and then they give a less bad reason, you know, like you weren't trying to murder your wife, you were trying to show yourself to be the protector, you were trying to impress your father in law, you were trying to, I don't know, protect this property, whatever it is that they say, that's going to be less bad for you. And of course, it's not less bad, but the person clings to that. It's human nature. And then they confess to that lesser thing. Yeah. This is what happened in this case.
0: Yeah. Now you, you've referred to medicine a few times of parents, both doctors, and so on. Within the book, you also talk about trying to convince a doctor about what to do with your own body about having a, a C-section.
1: <laughs> yes. It's kind of an absurd story that I included in the book, but it was it was my own experience of having to perform for the medical establishment. I, I got pregnant in 2015 and I moved to the UK with my partner who's English, and I guess being Iranian and having a mother who was an OBGYN. I am used to the idea of planned C-section. In Iranian culture it's very very accepted. My mother did it, my aunts did it, everyone we know did it, and I was raised to think that that's the best way. I also had a lot of fears about, you know, about vaginal birth and didn't think I could do it and all of that stuff, a lot of, you know, little traumas and things. And I came into the UK and I knew that my birth would be an NHS birth because I don't have a ton of money, I wasn't going to go private. So I realized that I had to convince an NHS midwife that I needed, you know, I had a medical reason, a psychological reason to need a planned C-section. And if I didn't succeed in doing that, I would have to go through a normal birth. And not only that, I was convinced I would fail at it and end up in emergency C-section. So it felt like this task that was monumental. You know, it had such consequences for me. But the key here was convincing this one woman who was this lovely grandmotherly midwife named Astrid. And she's, (laughs) she's, you know, sitting there and I go in and it felt weird because this was my truth. It was the truth. All those fears were real. But somehow I was very, very aware that I had to perform them for her in the way that she would accept them, you know. And I found myself kind of taking stock of various details of her, like she, is, she was Nordic seeming. And so I thought, oh, I should put away the hysterical Iranian, <laughs> you know, the dramatic and, the, oh my God, I'm going to die. No, none of that. She was older than me and a mother. So, you know, I knew that I could confide in her and and, and all kinds of other details like that. And and finally, you know, I sent Sam out of the room and, and I just told her some stories about my relationship with my body and and. And it took a couple of conversations and and then she said, okay, we'll book you in for plan C-section. And I think in the last conversation, one of the things that really struck me was that I felt the whole time that I had to prepare and that I was performing and that I was giving her a story, but really, I guess I was performing the very thing that I actually was, which is strange, isn't it? That that has to be anything but natural. That has to be a calculation.
0: Absolutely. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, you you go deep into your own family and your own experience. There's this kind of rather bucolic description of you being in a a commune (laughs) during COVID and having this kind of lovely lockdown time with with friends and family and everything. But what also comes into that is your brother-in-law. Yes, And he says that he may not want to live anymore and is Mm. basically threatening suicide. Nobody believes him.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it was, the family was divided. I mean, this went on for so many years. I came into Sam's family in 2015 and, you know, from the beginning, he was such a big part of the conversation. This youngest brother who had struggled with mental health issues his entire life and, and, you know, he would run away, you know, he would just buy a plane ticket and show up in Israel and be turned away by the authorities or, you know, go to Peru and Sam had to go and get him And, and, you know, he wasn't even, he didn't even have that much money. He would take his last, you know, he would open a new credit card or do something like that. So he struggled a lot, but to me, coming from a background of a refugee, someone who had toiled all their life, who really believed in just putting your head down and working hard and getting to the next thing, and really also was very aware of white privilege and class privilege and all of that stuff, seeing this young man with the best passport with the best parents, with a good house he'd grown up in and a college education and charming manners and good accent and all of those things. I thought, okay, enough, you know, enough. I don't believe this. This is nonsense. This is fussy. And I dismissed him and a lot of other people in the family. I mean, for me, this is very personal guilt, but others too thought, well, these threats of suicide aren't credible because they're always attached to something that he wants. And I looked it up too. And I, Saw that, you know, online that if it's attached to something, then maybe it's not as credible because they don't plan to leave Earth. You know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it wasn't that wasn't the case with us because what happened was, you know, after years of. His brothers were so so good to him. They would run to him and help and and do their very best. And and his family was. His parents were suffering and there were a lot of us on the periphery who I guess were just skeptical and I was very skeptical. And then one day in the middle of the pandemic, when we were stuck, Sam and I, in this kind of village in France that you mentioned, we get a phone call and you say that he's gone, that he's taken his own life. Thirty-five years old. I just couldn't believe it. Sam couldn't believe it. It was I mean, I I, I don't even have the words. It was unfathomable I mean that it could have happened there was a moment where I even I'm so ashamed of this such an unkind way to think I thought well first I thought no 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 it's a suicidal gesture he's in the hospital he's fine you know he, he tried and you know it didn't take and then when they said no he's definitely gone I said, no, well, he didn't mean to do it. It must have been an accident. He must have been trying to show us that he would do it and then accidentally did it, which is the, the worst thing to think. And then it took just several tries to swallow this pill that it had happened and that he had told us that it would and that he had sought help and people refused him. He went to doctors and the NHS and uh, mental health professionals and he was turned away again and again because he presented as a capable young man who could speak well and, you know, well, what could possibly be wrong, I guess, people said. And, I mean, that's I, I guess we'll never know mm. what those last days were because we were all locked down in our own homes. and.
0: But it comes back to the central tenet of your book. Mm. He was not believed.
1: No. And not by you. No, not by me. But, you know, I think the only point on which I can forgive myself is that I wasn't one of the experts. He was also not believed by experts. You know, he went looking for help. He went with his mother to, you know, lots of NHS doctors and he, he was I think, sectioned a couple of times. He was he he asked for help even days before he took his own life. And those experts turned him away. And it was their job not to. But for me, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of moments where I thought he was just misbehaving. And I think it had to do with the fact that, you know, in the book, I talk so much about about how we misunderstand people because of cultural storytelling norms. So, for example, you know, I have this thing that I would say about how Iranians tell stories in such a completely different way. And this is a problem in asylum storytelling because they arrive. And if they have no training in how to tell their story a Western way, they will tell this long and winding story that begins at the start of the universe. And, you know, (laughs) it just kind of continues over the decades and political turmoil. And it's just how we're taught to tell stories Mm. in Iran. So I I focused so much on fixing that in myself, you know, don't judge people's stories based on cultural bias. That I didn't realize that the bias that I had wasn't based on, you know, kind of nationality and culture. It was a different kind of cultural bias, I suppose. It was based on the fact that the stories that I like, that are familiar to me, that are my desired stories, are stories of survival and toiling and working hard and, you know, kind of dragging yourself out of something and someone that doesn't buy into that was unfathomable to me. Mm. And so in a way I had I did have cultural storytelling bias. It wasn't just it just wasn't the kind that I had trained myself to be to be aware of. Yeah, he just he did not give us the story that we were used to. He did not give me the story that I was used to and so mm.
0: In the book, you talk a lot about the UK Home Office and mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. You also use literature. You lots of references to, yeah. to Kafka mm-hmm. and the fact that really what has happened here has become a Kafkaesque nightmare.
1: Yeah, it's funny. You know, we throw around the word Kafkaesque so much, and and I threw it around all the time. And then I actually sat down and like reread the trial. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is such a perfect metaphor for this. And of course, it was kind of you know intended to be. But for the absurdity of these bureaucracies in which, you know, one person's individual judgment is then replaced with another person's and nothing kind of matches up and you have to go through all of these doors and the door slam shut in your face. And, you know, there was the, in the trial, I guess there's that little fable, the doorkeeper's fable, where, you know, this man goes and, and he keeps knocking on a door and there's a doorkeeper who keeps telling him to wait and he sits there waiting, wasting his life. And, and it's absurd. It's absurd. And, the only way, I get, I guess, you know, it's it's very hard to know how Kafka meant it to be interpreted, but, you know, the way I see it, the only way is, is to walk away from the entire system and to say, well, I will not try to go through this door. I will not be a part of this. And, and, and in many ways, the only way to escape that is death, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, Josh was reading Kafka at the end, and I wonder if he felt, like, absolutely kind of wrapped up in the absurdities of all the bureaucracies that he was a part of mm. and felt misunderstood and not heard. Have you have you dealt with some of these bureaucracies here? Sometimes you feel as though you're just speaking to a wall. So <laughs> <laughs> like nobody cares about these individual circumstances. They just have boxes to tick and mm. and inconsistencies to find and and that specific thing you need to say. And, Yeah, yeah.
0: Finally, Dina, we're talking just after the UK has announced new rules for for migrants. The British government says they're going to try and stop all small boats coming over the channel, but it will give them safe and legal ways to claim asylum, which they haven't done. I wonder what you think about these new regulations and this deal with France.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm not an expert in any of it, but I think one of the I mean, I'm constantly shocked by when they make you know pathways a part of the process of deciding whether or not you're here legitimately, because there is no illegal way to ask for asylum, and when you are running away for your life, you are not necessarily thinking of pathways. You're thinking of getting to safety, and there's all kinds of dangers along the way. So we can't judge things like, well, you got on in France, or you know, you got here or there. And not only that, but we also have have made agreements in the Refugee Convention, and we have a humanitarian duty. So my thinking on all of this is that it's almost as if the government has forgotten and don't care about the promises we made, about the duty we have to people who are hurt by kind of political situations that we had a hand in creating. You know, I think it's incredibly cruel. The small boats rule, for example, is incredibly cruel and it won't stop people from coming through that way because, again, they're running for their lives. And, yeah, again, I just want to repeat what a lot of humanitarian organizations have said, which is that there is no illegal way to arrive and ask for asylum. If you ask for asylum, that's it. That explains why you're there, you know. What's next for you, Gina? What's next for me? <laughs> um, well, I have just actually joined the faculty at the University of St. Andrews. So I teach there and I am now working on a novel yeah, I've decided to go back to fiction. I've been waiting to go back to fiction for a really long time, but these two, you know, nonfiction books were in me, and I had to put them out there as myself, you know, kind of what I feel about the world now. But I think my first love in terms of writing is, of course, the invention and and the the kind of immersion and the experience of creating something in fiction. And I'm writing a novel that is about. A family kind of like mine, but a family that is the three generations of Iranians, with the the third generation entirely Westernized and the first generation stuck in the past, and you know that kind of thing. We'll see where it goes.
0: Well I can't thank you enough for the huge contribution that the ungrateful refugee and now this book who gets believed are making to, to to the way we think about refugees and the way we respond to stories told and and the way that governments should be dealing with these things I think yeah. you've done a tremendous tremendous service to all of your readers
1: Oh thank you so much and I th- I think it's so important for for them to go looking for individual stories I mean not just in mine but in other people's you know very singular individual stories because one of the things that the other side does, that this government does, is to use kind of very overarching, you know, macro level sort of language. You know, these are just hordes of people, masses of people coming through, making them faceless. And so I think it's very, very important to look at these singular stories that are so, people whose lives were so familiar to ours before they became, you know, refugees or asylum seekers. And, you know, kind of to see them as people who might be our neighbors. Absolutely.
0: Mm. Dina Nairi, thank you so much for for talking to me. And if you'd like to know more about Dina's life, you can uh, download our uh, previous interview (laughs) where she talks about her own refugee experience. This book is called Who Gets Believed? It's published by Harville Secker. You've been listening to Monica Reads, thanks to our producer, Nora Hull. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin.